think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. A good ending, don't we? Are you with me on that? You get to the end of a book or you get to the end of a movie and it just feels right. Things all have come together and it's perfect. I grew up in an era of sitcoms where in the first five minutes of the show, a problem would arise. In the next 25 minutes, including commercial breaks, that problem would get solved and end up with everybody hugging and music coming into play at the end of the show. Or... MacGyver would figure out how to defuse the bomb with a stick of gum and a shoestring, right? There would be an incredible, great ending to it. We love good endings. I wonder if you were writing the end of the book of Acts, how would you write the ending? Would you maybe phrase it in this way that Paul finally gets to Rome and he gets in the courtroom and he's in front of Caesar and he looks at him and he tells him all the things that are wrong with Rome. Then he turns and he looks at those Jewish leaders that have been giving him so much trouble and he tells them off. And when he finishes his speech, the whole room erupts in applause, a standing ovation. They rush at him and they hoist him up on their shoulders, chanting his name as they take him out of the courtroom. Paul goes on to live a comfortable, happy life and dies an old man in his bed. Is that maybe where you take it? I, I don't know if that's where you take it, but we're going to turn to the last book, chapter of the book of Acts, and look at that this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 8, and we'll see how Luke finishes out this book. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning in Acts chapter 8, 28, verse 1. And after we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and they welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. We know from the last chapter that Paul has been through the ringer. Not only that, from the last several chapters, he's continued to face opposition after opposition, challenge after challenge constantly as he takes the message of the gospel to farther and farther places. And last week, we find that he's on a ship for two weeks, experiencing all sorts of difficulty. They're dead in the water. Then a storm rises up. It gets bad, real bad, to where they're throwing everything that's not nailed down overboard, hoping to save their lives. The sailors even, remember, they're going to abandon and get on the lifeboats and take out of there until the soldiers cut those loose to keep them there. And then the soldiers, they're going to go kill everybody because they don't want anybody to escape, the prisoners that have been on the ship, until Paul speaks up. And just when they think things can't get worse, they see land, they head towards it, only to run aground in a reef, and the ship starts to break up. It's cold, it's windy, the waves are going crazy, and now they find themselves all jumping off the boat. Those that can swim struggling through the waves, and those that can't, trying to grasp any part of the wreckage that they can to make it safe to shore. It's interesting that he says safe, isn't it? What is safe? Not dead? The last chapter, the last verse, also includes safety. 
As Americans, we have an interesting, uh, just complete preoccupation with safety, don't we? I think we have more helmets, more belts, more laws, more safety nets, more harnesses, probably than anywhere else in the rest of the world. Safety's not a bad thing. And, but if you don't believe me, just listen to the prayers that we often pray. Listen to the prayers your kids pray. How often do you wor- hear the word safe? Like I said, safety's not a bad thing unless your goal of safety keeps you from doing something daring that God is calling you to do. Aline Gooder said it this way. You can eat only bland foods to avoid ulcers. Drink no tea or coffee or other stimulants in the name of health. You can go to bed early and avoid all controversial subjects so as to never give offense. Mind your own business and avoid involvement in others' problems. Spend money only on necessities and save all that you can. You can still break your neck in the bathtub and it would serve you right. Now, I don't know that I'd go that far, but I would say that she's right in saying that safe lives are very dangerous. Here's what I mean. If our whole goal in life, our whole ambition, the way we orient all of our life is to create cushions and comfort and cruises, we are going to get to the end of our story, the end of our life, and we are going to see major regrets. Living the life with Christ is not a safe life. So as Paul continues to journey on this crazy uh, trip that he's on with God, he finally turns up in this island. It's been such bad weather, they don't even know where they're at. They realize it's Malta. Now, Malta was a small island. It's about 18 miles long and about eight miles wide. It was a place where often there were Roman soldiers that would go and they would retire there. There were also people that lived there. They were Phoenician ancestry. And so in verse two, as Paul talks about them as native people, or maybe your translation says islanders, He's speaking about those that did not speak Greek. And since I don't have a map, if you think of my foot as Italy's boot, and my hand as Sicily, just south of my hand is going to be a small island called Malta. And that's where they've ended up. It's cold. They're exhausted from trying to get out of the water. And what do they see as they come up? Unusual kindness by these people. Literally, this means no ordinary love or no little kindness. It's as though Paul is being ironic in his statement of saying this meant the world. As they came up out of the water cold and it now had begun to rain, the thing that greeted them was this fire and a warm welcome from the people that lived there. I think it's a reminder to us that God's provision doesn't always come in the form of avoiding the shipwreck, and avoiding imprisonment, and avoiding cold weather, and avoiding plots on my life. But his provision will always come with his presence. Did you hear that? God's provision will always come with his presence. And as we follow his plans and his will into the storms of life, he will do more in and through us than we could have ever done on our own. I think that's the reason why Paul had such a confidence 
on his journey. Someone once said that God can either deliver us from suffering or through suffering. That's the reason why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I win. We're going to see that posture all throughout this chapter. It's a reminder to us of this. What God has planned, he will provide for. What God has planned for, he will provide for. And as they come up out of the water, they find his first provision. Also throughout this chapter, you're going to see glimpses of hospitality. And as you do, I'd encourage you to circle each one that you come across. So right now we see unusual kindness, a fire kindled, and a welcome. Simple, but incredible, impacting hospitality. Verse 3 goes on. And when Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks, he put them on a fire. And a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Really? If the, if, is there ever a point where Paul could have said, Ah, oh, come on! Can't this be it? The guy has gone through everything and he makes it to shore. There's a fire and he's trying to help out. And he gets a snake hanging from his hand. If this were me, I can tell you this is the moment where I say, I'm done. If I'm operating in my own strength, I'm saying, I'm out. Because often the battle we face every day is a battle against me seeking to live this day for my kingdom, my plans, my good, or else me choosing to say, Jesus, I will live this day for your kingdom, for your plans, for your good, no matter what that asks of me. And it's a battle each and every one of us faces every day, isn't it? We don't always see it, but we all are facing it. Paul has the chance to say, do I want to use these people to serve me? Maybe I'll get to the fire I'll work my way in. I'll make sure I've got what I need. Or am I going to use my life to serve these people? Let me ask you a few questions to see what posture maybe you've been recently operating with in your life. Have you found yourself recently saying, why does this have to happen to me? Have you become more filled with self-pity? Do you find the need to always defend yourself? Do you find that nobody ever understands me? Does it seem as though everything always is against you? These might be some indicators that maybe you're trying to fashion your world with you in the center of it, and you want everybody else to make you in the center of your world too. The thing is, if that's our operating position, it's not going to take much to knock us out, to take us out of the game, to get our focus and distraction off of Jesus Christ. If this is me in that posture, I all I would have had to do is gather some sticks and get a sliver, and I'd be out and done, right? I saw this video. It kind of reminds me of the way that we operate. Maybe the situation is the little guy in blue on the right. And the, if I'm operating by myself in red, that one thing, I'm out. <laughs> Doesn't take much. I'm out. Isn't that what we do so often? God, it was supposed to be smooth sailing. This is too much. But it doesn't seem that Paul has that perspective. When we focus on our world and our story, we don't write a very good story, do we? We can focus on problems or we can focus on provisions. 
And Paul continues to see what God will provide through this. In verse 5, it says this, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Isn't that interesting? Billy Graham said this, Don't let circumstances distress you. Rather, look for the will of God for your life to be revealed in and through those circumstances. Incredible. What he's saying is rather than looking at things and saying, Why God? Why me? Instead saying, God, what might you be doing in this? And align your life to join God in what he's doing. As the islanders are looking at this, they're thinking from a perspective of things must be smooth sailing or else you did something wrong. They've got their mythological gods, right? The Greeks had this virgin goddess of Zeus that was there to bring justice and hunt you down for the wrong that you've done. The Phoenicians had a similar god. But Paul, he's serving a different god. His god has taken the punishment for him and continues to walk with him. N.T. Wright said it this way, there's no such thing as an abstract force of justice because there is a God of justice, a God who does indeed put all things right eventually. Paul has confidence to keep taking the next step because he can trust God. So what happens in verse six? They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. I just picture Sanka sitting there waiting and going, is he dead yet? Naman, right? And when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to them, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what the response of Paul was at this point, but no doubt it would have been consistent with what he's already done in Acts chapter 14. He wouldn't let them worship him at that point. He would redirect it to Jesus Christ. But it also reminds us that in every situation, circumstance that we find ourselves walking into, God is at work in a million ways. Maybe that we will never see or know, but God is at work. And I can trust that. Luke doesn't tell us all the ways that God is working through the story, but he does tell us how God continues to provide for them. And I wonder how much of that is set up through what Paul's just walked through and experienced. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. Now the chief man of the island literally means the first man of the island. This could mean the most wealthy person on the island, or more likely it probably means the governor that's on the island. So he hears of Paul, he hears of what's happened with the shipwreck, he takes notice. It says that he receives us and entertains us hospitably for three days. Hospitality, circle another word. He uh, has the resources to take them in and to care for them. God allows another way for provision to take place in God's plan. Now the us that's mentioned here, we're not sure if that's all 276 that come off the boat or if that's everyone except for the prisoners and the soldiers or if that's just the centurion and Paul and his companions. We don't know. But what we do know is that it for sure included Paul. And so Paul goes there, and in verse 8, it continues on to say, And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. When he had, this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Isn't it incredible that God just happens to bring Paul to Malta? Paul happens to be traveling with Luke, a physician. 
This is the only place that we find where Paul goes and he prays before a healing. It's a reminder that Paul knows that this healing is not from him. And a reminder that Paul continues to discern the will of God. But what I love is that as he's shipwrecked, he's just been bitten by a snake, they're cold in the, in the dead of winter, they finally find lodging. Paul's still interacting with this man in a way to find out what's happening in life. It just so happens that his dad is sick. So what's he do? He decides what any followers of Christ do. I'm going to go see if I can help in any way. And the result is incredible. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when they were about to sail, they put us on board. They put on board whatever we needed. Again, God continues to provide. It's as though he wants to take his people the followers of Jesus, and use them to set up these little outposts all over that create these communities of flourishing. That when these people are there, those places are better places for it. And not only that, it causes flourishing. Because Paul had went to Malta, Malta was a better place. And because God allowed Paul to be at Malta doing his work, Paul and his companions were in a better place, prepared for the journey. It doesn't tell us exactly if people chose to trust Christ or if Paul preached the gospel. I can presume he probably did. But I think that helps remind me too that it's not my job to save people. That's Jesus' work. My job is merely to join in what he's doing, to care for people and share the hope of the gospel. And how they respond is left up to their decision and to God. We don't always see this, but we know that I'm not a failure if I join in the work and I don't get the results that I can come back and share with everyone. I simply do what I'm asked. Verse 11, after three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed for three days. So we realize now that Paul and his companions and the rest of the people had been on this island of Malta for three days months. This is not wasted time. God had a plan that he was working out, and they were able to all engage and work into it. And what blows my mind is that the journey that they then took to Syracuse, scholars tell us, could maybe possibly have taken less than a day. For three months, they sat there. But because of the weather and transportation and God's plan, God worked in and through them before taking them just under a day's journey as they're on their way three months later. Not only that, they have everything they need as they're traveling. It says they got onto a ship of Alexandria. This is an Egyptian ship, probably most likely a grain ship, that's heading up north, and so they're able to go aboard. And as they walk on board, Luke continues to give us incredible detail through this account. He tells us there's a figurehead of twin gods that are on this ship, common for boats in that day. This would be a Greek god that would represent the constellation of Gemini which was thought to be good luck by the sailors. And I can only imagine what those sailors were thinking and what those prisoners were thinking as they boarded a ship. I'm sure they were thinking of their journey just three months ago, wondering if they would make it. And if I'm putting my confidence in that figurehead, I'm going to live very scared life. But Paul has confidence in something greater. They set sail and they continue to see God at work. In verse uh, 13, it says, And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to 
Puteoli. So it says that they made a circuit. Obviously, they were driven by the wind, and so they were heading north into the face of wind. They had gotten to Syracuse, which is on Sicily. It's the capital city of Sicily. So they'd gone just up north, stayed, and as they had a chance, they started traveling up northeast. But they're right in the face of wind. So they used an element they called tacking or zigzagging to capture the wind to finally get to uh, the toe of Italy. And they stay there, wait for wind that will carry them then up the coast. And as they travel up the coast in verse 14, Look what they find once they arrive. We found our brothers and were invited to stay. I would circle that yet again. With them seven days. And so we came to Rome. So they had gone up the coast from the toe of Italy, now up to uh, the city of Putili. And as they arrived there, oftentimes they would disembark and take the rest of the trip about 100 miles to Rome on land. They could travel up closer to Ostiet, a port in Rome, but that port was a busy port, often filled with ships, with travelers, with business, and it would have been difficult at this point to get into. So they get off, they start traveling over uh, land, and who's there but God's provision of some believers that are there waiting for them. They open their home, and they give them a place to stay for seven days, for a week. They're ready. Now remember, Paul's not the only one going and sharing the gospel. No doubt there would have been people from Rome, Jews, that had come to Pentecost, to the feast, that would have witnessed what God had done in the early parts of Acts through Pentecost. They would have gone back to their places that they lived and shared this message. And so there would have been believers that sprung up in different places. In fact, we know Paul wrote to these believers in Rome two years prior. Now, as they knew he was coming, they were ready to receive him. And you see, once again, the role of hospitality and the impact that it has. Church, God calls us to be a hospitable people. I can't think of a better time to be reminded of this than the time we live in right now. Last couple years, we've become more isolated and distanced as people. What an incredible way would it be for us as believers to shine a light than to be the kind of people that make people feel at home no matter where they're at. Whether that's right here, whether that's in your job, workplace, or maybe that's in your home. My wife and I, knowing that God calls us to be hospital people, wanted to continue to work on that skill and learn that skill. We had a neighbor family that moved in, and they had moved uh, next to us because he was studying uh, at the university, so it gave them an opportunity to come over from South Korea. As we met him, we decided, hey, we want to invite you guys to come to our home. We'll have a meal. There was a, a little bit of a disconnect in the language and definitely within the culture, but we finally nailed down to figure out a date and a time. So we cleaned up our place, we put some music on, we tried to get it to a spot where they'd feel at home. My wife had worked really hard and made this incredible chili. We hear a knock on the door, they show up, and we look, and they're carrying the side to our meal. What goes best with chili? Sushi. <laughs> now, I've never had chili and sushi before. And there's one other thing I've never seen before. My wife's chili is pretty hearty. It's pretty chunky. It's delicious. But I have never in my life seen chili eaten with chopsticks before that day. And it was quite a feat. 
we had a meal with them. We got to know them. We heard their story. They started inviting us over to their home. They did these Korean barbecues. It was amazing. Started to exchange food recipes and work together. In fact, the relationship started to grow more and more to one day where they invited us after a vacation to watch their home videos from the vacation. Let me just tell you this. Simple hospitality doesn't go all the way you plan, always the way you plan for it, but it can have a tremendous impact on the lives from people. And it can open the door for encouragement and for the gospel. They provide again hospitality, and it says, and so they came to Rome. In verse 15, the brothers there, when they'd heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So the, be- the believers are traveling around. They, they realize that Paul is coming. They see him and they start to journey with him on the way to Rome. What an encouragement that must have been to Paul and what a testimony to the rest of the people traveling with them. In fact, as we continue on in verse 15, we see the impact. It says, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. It's really interesting in this verse is this word courage, the term that's used in Greek, is only used one other place in its verb form. It's in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And Paul has had a really hard day on this day as well. The crowd has wanted to get to him and tear him apart. The soldiers have rescued him, taken him back to the barracks. In verse 11 of chapter 23, it says this, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, and so you must testify also in Rome. He tells him to take courage. He tells him the plan. And what happens? We get to chapter 28, and Paul's walking into Rome. And as he sees the faces of those believers coming to greet him, he takes courage. Isn't it incredible that God knows exactly what we need, even before we know what we need? Why wouldn't we trust a God like that? It says that he took courage in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. Now there's a transition that starts to take place into verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when he had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or our customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason to put me, put the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, I therefore have asked you to see, asked to see you and to speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of us, the brothers coming here, has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for we regard this sect, we know, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul, again, being strategic, understands he's going to be in trial before Caesar pretty soon, and those that are accusing him will be the leaders of the Jews. He gets to Rome and he wants to start to see what they're thinking and what their attitude is towards him, how they might uh, view him. Now we know that the Jews had been expelled earlier from Rome, 
But after Claudius' death, they were able to come back in. So there were communities of Jewish people around Rome and also Jewish leaders that were there as well. Paul gives us a little bit more information through his speech than we gathered before. We find out that the Jews had objected. And so that's one of the reasons he was compelled to ask Caesar. And so we wanted to find out where these guys were at. Pretty strategic so he could prepare and what he was going to do. But also, no doubt, Paul wanted to see where they're at because he's thinking of how he can share the hope of the gospel with them. Verse 23. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. You see, hospitality can even be worked out in prison. It doesn't matter where you're at. Paul's in house arrest. And what's he do? He uses the resources that God has given him to help the people that are around and invites them into his home so he can speak with them. They came in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Whenever Jesus is presented, we have an option to choose to believe in him or to choose to reject him. There is no neutral ground. To not believe is to disbelieve. It's an active way that we live. Paul lays the grounds here that there are some that will believe and some that will not. Again, it's not Paul's job to save them. His job is to simply love them, care for them, present the gospel to them, and speak the truth to them. And so he's done that. And God will not force himself onto anyone. He's ready to invite us to follow him. But that will be our decision. And when they don't hear his message, they don't believe, Paul goes on to say that he'll take it to the Gentiles, which has been his pattern all throughout his missionary journey. To the Jew first, and then to the rest of the world. So he goes in and starts to quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, and verse 25, and disagreements among themselves and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying that your fathers through the prophet Isaiah go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has gone dull and with their eyes, they can barely hear and with their eyes, they have closed lest any should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, I would heal them. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul presents an opportunity for them to continue to make a choice. Some of your texts, verse 29, will restate the same information. It was added Uh, later in some Western text, and it simply restates the debate that continues to happen among the Jewish leaders. No new information that was added other than uh, just reiterates verse 25. Verse 30 goes on to say this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For two years, he continues to teach about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And then we get to the end of that and we turn the page. 
And that's the end of the book. Now, if you're anything like me, you get to this part and you're like, what? What about the trial? What about Caesar? What happens to Paul? Where's the rest of this story? What kind of ending is this? Some think that Luke had planned to write a third edition. So there's Luke, Acts, and another one. But it's not in the word of God, so that wasn't God's plan. Some think that Luke didn't have the information. He didn't know what happened to Paul, but that's not true as well. They were in the community. They would have continued to have news travel around. So why this ending? I think it's really intentional. I think there's a point that Luke is trying to make that he doesn't want us to miss. This isn't a happy ever after. This isn't a riding off into the sunset. This is something that's continuing to capture our attention for a reason. So what happened to Paul? I think we can gather from information in this chapter and put that together with church history. The Bible doesn't speak specifically to Paul's story, but church tradition will tell us a little bit about it. We find in this passage that Paul doesn't seem like he's much of a threat to Rome. When he first arrives in Rome, do you remember what happened? They exchanged the centurion that's been traveling with him constantly and that's always been by his side to a common ordinary soldier. And also, they give him the most lenient prison uh, implementation that's possible. He's under house arrest. And for two years, it says they wait. Those two years are not wasted, by the way, because God's plan provide opportunities So in that period, it's very likely that Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon, which had been incredibly helpful to the church. They weren't wasted years. It's likely during that time that they're waiting for the accusers, those that will prosecute to come. But Paul, in the way he's wording this, is hinting towards the fact that they never came. It's very likely that Paul would have been released, or at least Caesar would have seen him, and had no evidence to overturn anything in the lower courts and would have let him go. And in that period, the accusers may not have shown up for a couple of different reasons. Maybe they thought that Paul had been shipwrecked and that it was over, he's finally dead. Or maybe they realized that Rome was very strict on false accusations, and they didn't have the guts to come before Caesar and continue to try the game that they had been playing. For whatever reason, the window of prosecution closes Paul is most likely released. I believe he probably goes and travels to Ephesus and then to new areas all around. If we read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, we find that it's mentioned there are new cities that aren't mentioned in the book of Acts. But church tradition will tell us too that later on, Paul is yet again arrested. He's imprisoned, only this time much more of a difficult situation. Ultimately, he's executed by Rome. Second Timothy, as you read through it, you start to see the somberness of Paul's message and yet the hope that's filled in there as he knows the end is coming. So Luke, what's the deal? Why didn't you include that in the story? That would have been a helpful ending. I think the reason he didn't do that is because this is not a book about Paul. The story of Acts is not a story about Paul. It's not a story about Stephen. It's not a story about Luke. It's not a story about any disciples or any people in this story, except for one person. The book of Acts is a story about Jesus. You find it on page one, and you find him concluded at the very end, talking about the kingdom of God 
and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find Jesus at work all throughout the book, in and through the lives of his people. The reason that Luke does not talk about Paul's life at the end is because this is not about Paul. It's about the king. And he bookends the first part of this book and the last part of this book with a common phrase. We've seen it throughout the book of Acts as well. In in fact, in Acts chapter 1, he starts by saying this in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, he presented himself alive. Who? Jesus? Jesus. To them. After his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them and during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And how does Paul conclude this part? In the last verse, it says that he continues to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is kind of an interesting term, isn't it? What do we mean about the kingdom of God? What's the deal with this king? We know it's not just a geographical thing. There's not limits to this kingdom where, where he can and can't go because this king rules the whole world. In fact, there are believers that live in Rome and all over the areas that Paul's just gone that have other rulers, and yet they say there is a greater king. This king is even a king of kings. What about his reign? This king's reign doesn't just reign over people. This king, his reign starts to reign over people's hearts. And as this king grabs the allegiance of their hearts, it starts to transform people. This king starts to work in and through them. So not only does he transform them, but the places where they're at become transformed as well. It's as though you could say, the place where these people live reflect the kingdom of their king. And it happens everywhere. It happens in their life. It happens in their families. It happens in their houses. It happens in their neighboring cities as they travel wherever they go to. It seems as though the limit of this kingdom has no limits. It happens in a prison. It happens in a boat. It happens in synagogues. And it happens in the marketplaces. It continues to have transformation go wherever God's people are going as they live and follow this king in their ordinary, everyday days. It starts in Jerusalem, but it goes on to Philippi. We see evidence of it in Malta, and now we see it happening in Rome. And it happens when his people let him reign in their hearts. When they say, not my will, but yours, God. When they submit their heart and their actions and their attitudes and their stuff and their time all to this king. And start to do things that are unimaginable, almost upside down in the culture. When someone is sick, they're the first ones to go to be with them. When they see those that are marginalized or left out, they pull their things together to help them. When they work in their ordinary, everyday jobs, they're people that work hard and use their skills and gift to create flourishing in that community all the while looking for opportunities to share that same hope they've found with the people right around them that God has given them. And it's not about someday out there, this kingdom that will come. Yes, it's not here in its fullness, but it's about right here, right now, 
right where God has placed each and every one of us. His kingdom is continuing to grow. In a sense, Paul's journey has reached its end. He's gotten to Rome, which is the gateway to the rest of the world. We know it's not the end of the world. In fact, in, in their day, they thought Spain was kind of the end of the world, and it will continue on. But we know that his kingdom is continuing on even to this day. He's continuing to reach people that still have not heard the message of hope that we find in Jesus Christ. And he's using ordinary, everyday people like you and me to do it. In a sense, Paul's end of his story is where our story begins. I think if I were to label this, the best label I could give it would be to be continued. Because the work is going to continue on. And what he's asking us is that we view ourselves as an opportunity, as a, as a vehicle, as a vessel to continue the work that Jesus is doing in each and every one of our lives. And I believe that he'll do that. I believe that there are people in this room right now that God will call to go out from among us to the places that have yet to hear the gospel and take this message of hope in the same way Paul did. Yes, it may be a little scary, Maybe have some adventure. Maybe it's not as safe as we'd like to say. But what God plans, he will provide for. And I believe that there will be those in this room that we will send out as a church to continue to take this hope around the world. And I also believe that for every one of us that is in this room, he wants us to continue to live this kingdom life right here, right now. In every opportunity it gives us, the easy things and the difficult things, through the ordinary, everyday pieces of life, as we continue to dare to be the church. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that your story has not ended. God, I wonder if we were in chapter 29 of Acts and it was about us in this room, if it would be a compelling story. God, I pray that your spirit would continue to refine us. God, help us to live and see if we're living a selfish life or if we're daring to continue to submit everything to you every day that we have. God, may this be the prayer of our heart. Oh Lord, let me not henceforth desire health or life except to spend them for you, with you, and in you. You alone know what is good for me. Therefore, do what seems best to you. Give to me or take from me. Conform my will to yours and grant that with humble and perfect submission and holy confidence, I may receive the orders of your eternal providence and may equally adore all that comes to me from you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. Amen.